So we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to dive into this thing. We're talking about pursuing God. That's our series for the month of January. And we're going to talk today about why pray. Now, in this particular series, I got, I got three goals in this series. The first goal is this, is to understand theologically why God desires us to pray. So for a few moments here at the beginning, I'm going to, I'm going to take you into theology 101. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of Gonna do some heavy philosophical things to connect the dots since those types of questions are usually asked when everyone's sitting around a living room they start asking the deep questions you know about God is God so strong and so powerful that he creates a rock too heavy for him to lift it's a great question are there toilets in heaven <laughs> Jesus ate after the resurrection yeah, we're not going to answer those questions today <laughs> The type of questions you ask in theology 101 classes. But I'm going to make you think a little bit theologically to understand why God has this thing that he's designed called prayer. Our second goal in this series is to be equipped to pray in all modes of prayer. How many people know there's, there's more than one mode of prayer? I want to encourage you to, to take Jan Stahl's uh, every Saturday, first Saturday of every month, her, her, her prayer workshop, because she deals with one mode of prayer, usually per Saturday, and has you do some unusual things sometimes in prayer, just to give you the full gamut and rainbow of what prayer can be. Our third goal is this, is to be inspired to develop the discipline of prayer. Prayer is a discipline, and discipline is a part of the Christian life. And, uh, you know, don't, I don't want you staying up late. For instance, I'll take a, a natural illustration. You, you see these infra commercials. They get a, they buy something and they, they pull a few levers and they get a 32-inch waist and a 19-inch bicep. I want you to know that's a complete lie. Someone, it's on Instagram. You take these vitamins and you will never, ever again, ever gain weight. That's a lie. Take those vitamins. You keep eating like the way you're doing, you're going to still gain weight. Okay, so... So things happen in the natural through a thing called discipline. Our relationship with God, getting closer to God, hearing God's voice, developing our spiritual gifts, it requires a thing called discipline. I wish it didn't. I wish we could be lazy, casual believers and get what we want to get out of God, but God never designed that that, that way. Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, pick up your what? I mean, that's like ABCs of Christianity. It starts with a cross. It starts with a death experience. How many people know that death to self is not easy? You ever just been in a place, you know, I want to argue, but I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to argue. I'm going to shut up. I'm going to keep biting my tongue. I'm I'm not going to do this. You ever done that? I have to do that all the time. It's dying to yourself, see? Dying to yourself. All right, so let's let's get into some of the big questions. Well, Bob, if God plans all events, okay, if God knows the end from the beginning and God is all-powerful and he's working all things to work together to accomplish his one great purpose, the, the future and everything else, then why pray? If God is all-powerful, like the Bible does say that he is, and he's intentional, God's actually working history, working your life working the work of the church to a completed end. He's in control. And he's in control of all these things and bringing it to completion. Why does he ask us to pray? All right, here you go, students. Here's your answer. 
That is this. God has determined every future event. But those events can be shaped by our choices. So let me give you an example on this. Let's say someone who we faced a lot of this is sick in the hospital. Someone is sick. And we get our focus, we get prayer out, and, and uh, everyone's interceding, the elders gone over, and they're anointing with oil, and all of a sudden there's this miraculous recovery. For instance, Terry Gilbo in our church, he came out of his heart surgery, but he didn't come out. They said he had a massive stroke, and I think it was two to three days he wasn't conscious, and all of a sudden he just woke up, no effects and everything, didn't remember anything. They called him Miracle Man in the, in, in the hospital, in ICU. Okay, so, so, you know, all of a sudden prayer takes place. Patty's a great, great intercessor. She knows how to get a hold of God, and, and God responds to the cry of a wife and others praying, and he recovers. Well, you can say that healing was a part of God's plan. That, that, that man was, in Terry's situation, was destined to be healed, and, or this person's in the hospital, they're destined to be healed. But also, I want to say that prayer was a part of that destination, too. It was part of that formula that God knew about to bring that thing to pass. Now, of course, the bigger question is asked, did, did God cause this sickness? his purpose? And the answer is no. God doesn't, God, God doesn't basically create evil. I'll talk about this in a second, right? why evil exists. Second question is, well, did God allow it? And the answer is yes. Did God, did God cause it? No. Did God allow it? Yes. You know, evil exists because free will exists. So when God created the universe and when God created moral beings called human beings, men and women, he didn't create us to be robots. Because he didn't create us to be robots, he made evil possible. And when free will agents make choices that are not a part of his choice and his will, evil begins to exist, the consequences of evil and the consequences of those choices. And the next thing we knew, we, we see the news and everything we face. We see a messed up creation that Paul says is groaning for a day by which it'll become renewed. So evil exists because God gave us the potential of free will, which gives the potential of, of evil. Now Jesus, but yet God will use things like sickness, and God will use things like things that are just morally wrong, and he will use it to extend his glory and his purpose. Now, we see this in two statements of Jesus. Remember Jesus? Remember him? I'm going to read the Bible to you today. I'm just not going to flash. You might have to turn in a Bible or a smartphone. Oh, by the way, these books, Starving, a commercial, you can go to Amazon online. You can buy them for about nine, ten bucks, these books on Amazon for you ebook people. Just want to let you know that. John chapter 9. Of course, there was this man who was born blind from birth. And his disciples asked Jesus about this man born blind. They were, they were classic charismatics back in the first century. His disciples asked him in, in John 9 1, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's, that's a nice perspective. Either this guy did wrong or his parents did wrong. That's why this evil is happening. I mean, how would you like to be in that church? 
Jesus said this, neither this man nor his parents sinned. That means bad things can happen to people who are in a great relationship with God. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Well, Bob, how come this happened? I don't know. But I do know that if it happened, that through the work of grace and God's wisdom, that there is a work that God is going to display eventually in that situation. John chapter 11. Lazarus, remember Lazarus? He died. Jesus heard about it and wasn't in a hurry about going to rescue the one who was his close friend and he loved. And Jesus made this statement to his disciples in John 11, verse 4. And he, when he heard this, Jesus, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, no, it is for God's glory. Now, you won't have people even dare say that. It is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Sometimes God is setting the stage for him to show off. Not because he causes it, but in his sovereignty he allows it. Remember Joseph's brothers? They weren't, what a, what a wonderful family. <laughs> brothers betray him, they hated him, they were jealous of him. They beat him up, they throw him in a pit, take his garment, put a bunch of animal blood on it, bring it to their dad, lie to him, say an animal devoured them as all that's remained. They took him in that pit and sold him to a slave train to Egypt, lied about that whole thing, and he went there, was falsely accused of rape, went into prison, the dungeons for years, and was forgotten only for God to fulfill his purpose in his life and make him the prime minister of Egypt and even to save his family and Egypt at that time. Brothers were scared he was going to take retribution on them. And he says, well, don't, 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 don't look at it that way. For you meant it for evil. It's not that God endorsed and put the thought, go beat up Joseph right now. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so here we have this thing called our choices and the shaping of things. So in that, we can say this, that God ordains the future events, but also the means to that event. He, he ordains that he's going to bring a healing, and he ordains the prayers that are going to bring that. So in that, we want to look at this, that our prayers can determine how God's plan can be worked out, taking that principle. But the, the process by which God brings about his plan does not have to be rigid, but fluid. And I, I've talked to you about this in the area of guidance. Remember when I told you that a lot of Christians are like, uh, they're GPS and guidance. You know, yesterday, Sue and I tried to find a Carhartt store down at Cascade Station. Thousands of cars. I've never been down there. It was so crowded. And and, you know, it was leading us to the airport. I said, it's not at the airport. And, of course, the, the, the GPS got rewinded. Take a U-turn 300 feet. Go this way, two-tenths of a mile. Turn left here. You know, you know, guys have all done the GPS thing. We think God guides that way. There's only one way. The Holy Spirit sounds like Siri. And it's leading me here. And left here, right here, forward here. Bim, and, 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 you, and that's and if, if I step out, if I choose... Door number two, not door number one. The curse of God's going to be on me. I mean, some pastors do that to people leaving the church. I, we just feel like we're supposed to be going to another church. No, that's not the will of God. You're going to burn. You're going to die. You're going to you know. I mean, Jesus is limited to City Harvest Church. 
That's your faith in Jesus, that he couldn't guide a person. Even if they made a wrong decision, he couldn't land them. I probably made a ton of wrong decisions, and God in his mercy landed me. He landed me. But more like roadmaps. I remember that time I brought out the map, and all the millennials were looking at that like, what is that? Oh, yeah. Someone just told me the other day, they, got, went, they went to someplace, they needed direction, and they opened up a map to some person, and the person says, I don't know how to read a map. <laughs> well, God can guide by maps. And one of the wonderful things about maps is it can give you about 100 options. Amen. Okay, so God is going to guide you. He's going to land you, you know. He knows what it is. You don't have to fear like he's ready to club you one mistake. You know, we go that, but we also do that in prayer. Like, you know, because we didn't pray here, God didn't do that, and we didn't do that, and God didn't do that. God, God, and, and we have to do it just this way. There's fluidity in the plan of God and how he's going to land this plane. And you actually see this in Exodus chapter 32. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus 32. Bob, you're having us open our Bibles today. Yeah, I'm not going to spoon feed you. I'm going to make you open up something. Genesis 32. Excuse me, Exodus 32. Just testing you. Exodus 32. This is when children of Israel, they, they had a little festival in front of a golden calf. It's pretty bad. They most likely had a, a basically a, an orgy taking place before that golden calf following the sexual rites of pagan nations. Okay, so it was a gross, intense scene. A lot of the movies make it a little bit PG-ish, but it was more like triple X. It was a bad scene while Moses was getting the holy tablets. And God says this in, in, in Exodus 32, verse 9. God's talking to Moses. He says, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, and I will make you into a great nation. You think, well, man, God's awful wicked in here. We just, just first think about what God had done for them. He had brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, all the way on dry land. He fed them out of a rock. He healed the waters at Meribah. When they didn't have anything to drink, he healed it. Okay, he was faithful to them. He blessed, and they went out with full blessings. And the Bible says there was not one feeble one among them, so there was a mass healing that took place. God had been kind to them, and they just went from A to Z. They did a 180. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom he brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say... It was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountain, to wipe them off the face of the earth. This is Moses talking to God. Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Now, God's not, he's not asking God to repent of who he is, but just to change his decision. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land. That's what he said to Abraham. I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. So God promised an inheritance to the descendants of Abraham. And the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now I want to say this. Think about what God said to Abraham. Your descendants will be like the stars in the heaven. If God had taken option one, 
and wiped the idolaters out of the Israel, wiped the nation out, and just kept Moses in a remnant, he still would have fulfilled his promise to Abraham. God didn't have one option to fulfill it. That's what I'm trying to say. There's fluidity in our prayers. That's why we need to be praying. We can ask God and plead for God. He'll listen to us without altering his one plan to bring his plan to pass. God is creative on that. We get so rigid sometimes in the way we think. So God's plan and determination is not what we call fatalism. Fatalism is this. Fatalism is, it says this. It means that what is going to happen is going to happen. You know, I can't do anything. Our choices do not affect the future. It's like the Calvinists, some, some who believe very strongly in fatalism without knowing it, who fell down the staircase, got up and says, I'm glad that's behind me. That's a theology joke. Okay, obviously pretty nerdy. <laughs> Our prayers can do this. I'm just messing with my, my thing here. Excuse me. Our prayers can change the future. I can change the future of my life. In this three weeks of fasting, I can say, you know, I'm going to make a change in my life. I can, I can begin to pray things that birth new things in my life that I haven't experienced before. New freedoms, new, new healing, new, new purpose, new anointing, new wisdom. I can pray and break things open for my, my family. I can, my children, my wife, I can, I can pray things through for the church, for the city we're trying to reach, for the nations we're trying to touch, for churches we're trying to plant. I can birth things in prayer. Prayer, God will use my prayer as a means to bring about what he wants to accomplish. It's interesting, C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, became a great theologian. He had a very interesting perception on prayer because if you look in the New Testament, there's a phrase that says, before the foundations of the earth. And he believed very strongly that, uh, and, and by, because of the foreknowledge of God, and he was right, that, that our prayers had already shaped the future events that were taking place before we even existed. I know it's an abstract thought because God knew the means before he saw the end. And at the same time he saw the end, I should say. He says this, and the parentheses are my own words just to help to understand the definition of what he was trying to say. My free act of prayer, Lewis says, contributes to the cosmic shape or the shaping of history. That contribution of prayer is made in eternity or before the world began, since God knew we'd be praying. But my consciousness of contributing in prayer reaches me at a particular point in time. The point is this, when I start praying, God had ordained that I'd be praying. So this is why prayer is important. Well, you say, well, Bob, why, why does God just not do it himself? Why does he tie this thing to this thing called prayer? You know, if we don't pray, something very, um, something very horrible will take place in our life. We will become people who assume and take things for granted. There's an interesting verse in Zechariah 10.1. It says, In the time of the latter rain, seek God for rain. The second reigning season of, of, of Israel's calendar, agricultural calendar. In that time, when rains do come cyclically, don't assume that rain's going to come. Don't take it for granted. Seek the Lord 
for rain. When we don't pray, we take God for granted. When we don't pray, we become thankless. When we don't pray, we become independent. When we don't pray, we become self-sufficient. When we don't pray, we become arrogant. So one, we need it or we're going to get harmed. The second thing, God in his great mercy wants to work with man and through man, not around him. He works through the church, not around the church. He works with the church, not apart from the church. People, oh, I love Jesus, I don't love the church. You don't love God. I mean, me and Jesus are doing great. Not if you're bagging the church or not. I don't care what revy you got. He works through the church and with the church. Well, it's got all sorts of messes. Yes, it does. I got stories for you. <laughs> but he works with that, in it, and through it. He wants us to be partners. And in eternity, we're going to have a family business. It's going to be called God and Sons or God and Daughters or God and Sons and Daughters. It's a family business. That's why in the book of Revelation, you will reign with them. You'll sit in the seat of authority that's he in. Wild scriptures about you and I. Paul even refers to you and I being involved in the judgment. Why take you each other to court? Don't you know that one day you're going to judge angels? I don't know what that's going to be like, you know. God has a few rotten angels there. Kyle, what do you think I should do to them right now? Come on. I don't know. But what Paul's saying is act like royalty. Because you are. Now, what is prayer? I'm going just a few minutes longer here today, but pretty exciting stuff, isn't it? I'm pretty excited, aren't I? I may not be too interesting right now, but I'm excited. We've already established it's the tool that God uses to bring about his plan. It's the means. We've kind of established that. I don't need to repeat that. Second is this. It's an opportunity to get to know God and develop a relationship with him. You know, it goes back to the old example. There's a difference about knowing about someone and knowing that person personally. There's a lot of people that don't, you know, they're, they're not real studious and they haven't been to Bible college or gone to seminary or got a degree behind their name, but through prayer and seeking God, they, they know God. You can throw at them, what about this and what about that and what about that? All they know is this, is that God reveals himself to them. All they know is that They've realigned their will to his will through prayer, that God deals with their motives, that, that he gives them direction, that he makes promises and brings them to pass, that he, that he gives them grace in times of weakness. He empowers them for service. He, he answers prayer. At the end of the day, the unbeliever's the fool because this simple person says, I don't know, I don't know how to answer that. All I know is that he answered me. All I know is he strengthened me. All I know is that I was this and now I'm this. All I know is he's changing me. All I know is he comforts me. All I know is he opens my eyes to his word. I know him. That's, that's all I know. I know him. I've tasted him. I've touched him. And that comes through prayer. I mean, I just love like the 80-year-old you know, widow in the church. Man, why, why it's always a widow, not a widower, but she's kind of, maybe she's got a little arthritis. She's got a sweet smile, a lot of wrinkles. She's got her old Bible just marked all to pieces, but she doesn't have a worn out life. She has a life that's been with Jesus. 
She has a life where she called things into existence. She has a life where she heard the voice of God. She has a life where she, she was mightily used by God to move people forward in the will of God. She knows him. Knows him. Third reason, what, what is prayer? It's an, it's an opportunity to praise God. I will enter his gates, Psalm 100 verse 4 says, with what? Thanksgiving. And into his courts with what? I will give thanks to his name and praise him. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father, your, your name is separated, holy, unique, wonderful, above all things. What, what, what's worship? I come into his prayer. So prayer is not just God, help me, help me, help me, help me. It's God, I'm just going to honor for who you are. It's worship. It's lifting your hands. It's lifting your voice. It's praising him. It's, an opportun- it's also this. It's an opportunity. <clears throat> yeah. Same thing I said before. It's all right. Write this down. I know what happened. There was just one line. I didn't check last night when I was checking it. This should be in there. It's an opportunity for you to depend upon God. Psalm 34. David said that I I sought the Lord and he heard me. And he delivered me out of all my fears. This poor man cried and the Lord listened and delivered him out of all his afflictions. Let the humble hear of it and rejoice. The NIV says, let the afflicted hear it and rejoice. Why would the afflicted and the humble rejoice in you getting answers to prayer? Because if you're down and you're weak and you're broken and God came and delivered you, he's going to do the same thing for me. It's the language of the humble. It's the language of the dependent. In fact, our, our prayer life really reveals how much we really depend upon God. Number five, I'll get to six in a second. It's the messy business of chasing God. You know, the Bible says, and, and I don't know the exact number, 70 to 73, I, I could be correct. I could have Bill correct me on this. Psalms, out of the book of Psalms that David actually wrote. It's, in the, it's, it's 70 to something around that, that they attribute to David. That the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. It's interesting. I want you to focus on after, after God's heart. David was a God chaser. And one of the things I love about the Psalms is that they're raw. They're honest. It's what Wendell Smith used to call honest to God prayer. It's prayer that it has guts to it. It has genuineness to it. It's got feeling to it. It's got humanity in it and 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 the uniqueness of life to David chased God to know God. David chased God to please God. David chased God to be with God. And in that chest chasing, there's messiness because there's messiness in life. There's, there's things like questioning. God, I don't understand. Why, why are these things going on? Why aren't you answering the problem? I'm questioning God. Why, why me? There's repenting. There's crying out. There's wrestling. There's praising, there's reflecting. You know, when I first got saved, you know, 
God was blowing upon the church and people were really getting a hold that God wants to be the present God in your life now and a lot of positive books like one was called How to Live Like a King's Kid. How many old timers remember that book? That book just made me feel terrible. <laughs> Cuz you know this guy was just happy and joyful and victorious and I was miserable and moody and irascible and questioning and arguing and feeling like I'm a horrible Christian. I, why can't I have just a wonderful attitude until I started reading the Psalms? They have lousy attitudes. I like this book. <laughs> they're asking questions. They're, they're wrestling with faith. They're, they're going through stuff. And all of a sudden, I found great comfort in the Psalms because life is messy. God, God doesn't have a problem with your heart. Abraham says, let Ishmael live before you. Let my plan A work. No, 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 plan A won't work. I'll, I'll favor it, but it ain't, it ain't plan A. It's going to be plan B, C, okay, but, and I'll work with it. But I want plan A here. I was in a conversation. Well, it's real stuff, real heart, real honesty. It's not just petitioning. It's developing that messiness. It's also the discipline of submission. Jesus told us to pray. He told us to pray this way. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. For us to pray that, we have to desire for his will to be done. For us to desire for his will to be done, we have to be willing and desirous to submit to his will. And if we want God to hear us, we have to be in a place of submission. Psalm 66 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, and that could be just resistance to the will of God, the Lord will not hear me. We forget those verses. Now you can come marred, beat up, full of scabs on your knees because you fell forward, but you're still coming saying, God, I want to submit to you. I want to do it your way. I want an audience with you. A believer who is serious about knowing God and having communion with him is a submitted Christian because they have, their time with God in prayer has required it. Seventh reason is what God uses to help us know where we are with him. Since it's interesting, God finds Adam. Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding? Elijah, what are you doing here? You ever hid from God? You ever gone into prayer with wrong motives? Confusion? Maybe it looks like you're doing spiritual, but you're just in that place, and God calls you out on it. I got to adjust your attitude. I got to adjust your heart. I got to get you to the right perspective. Come on, prayer does that. So, as we, it's nice, I'm stuck, still stuck, there we go. We need to periodically evaluate where we are in our relationship with God. I'm going to end, the worship team come on up here, I'm going to end with a quote from a famous revivalist preacher out of England, famous especially in the 60s and the 70s, named Leonard Ravenhill just to kind of take his words and evaluate our own heart. He said, a man is not greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. 
The people who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, a few agonizers, a lot of fashion and little passion. And many writers, we've got a whole lot of Christian books out there, but very few fighters. A sinning man will stop praying, and a praying man will stop sinning. Our accent is on plain. Theirs, our forefathers, foremothers, the founding mothers and fathers of our faith, theirs was on praying. When we have paid, the place is taken. We got all the money we want in the United States. We can buy properties and build buildings. When they prayed, the place was shaken. I'm not against big buildings and nice things, but we do have to ask ourselves sometimes, with all the architecture we have and all the money we put into brick and mortar and all the programs we have, have we really, really shaken our cities? Have we really shaken our nation? Am I uh, am I plain? Am I strain? Am I organizing? Am I displaying fashion? Or am I fighting and agonizing, seeking God, wanting to shake the foundation? of my own city, my own church, because God wants to do something more. I close and I just tell you a story. I was, this is before we started City Harvest Church. I was in a city in Brazil called Presidencia Prudente, and uh, they had taken me around from city to city on a daily thing. I did basically kind of almost revival meetings in every city for about seven straight days. And um, I, wasn't in a, I wasn't in a good place spiritually. And I uh, remember praying for about three or 400. I, I knew it. So every place I went, I just said, give me a prayer room. So just, I just need to get myself in the line with God. And I, I'll never forget, and I was praying for these people. I was in the middle of a mob praying for this, these people. And this older Brazilian woman grabbed my hand and brought me down to her ear. And in a broken English, she read my mail where I was at. And I knew it was from God. It was a great help to me. It was a great hope and a great promise. I remember going, I, this church was just rattled with intensity and life and anointing. And I ate at this, these people's houses. They had the pastor over there. And this woman reaches across the table to me. She says, Pastor, right now we have intercessors on top of the hills surrounding this city. And she looked at me and she says, we are shaking the foundation of this city. Prayer. Are we, we just buy things or are we going to shake things? Are we just going to write books or are we going to fight? Are we going to play or are we going to pray? Let's stand to our feet.